Thank you, Mike, and good morning, church. Great to see you on this Lord's Day. Great to see your faces. Great to see your smiles. If you're here for the first time, we want to extend a very warm welcome to you. Thanks for joining us together as we worship the Lord in this place. It is Sunday, March 6th of 2022, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25 this morning. Today is the first Sunday of what is known as Lent. Lent is a 40-day period of time that began last Wednesday, also known as Ash Wednesday, and concludes at sunset on Maundy Thursday, which this year will be April 14th. It's one of the most important times of the year for Christians around the world, not just for our Catholic and Orthodox friends, but for Christians worldwide. Christians first began observing Lent as far back as the middle of the second century in preparation for the celebration of the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And since Lent has not been a custom in our church, I simply want to challenge you to use this season as a time of intense spiritual focus that leads you to deeper surrender to the Lord. There are six Sundays before Easter Sunday. And so our focus in these six Sundays together will be on the life of Jacob in a series that we're calling God in the Chaos. Near the end of his life, Jacob was introduced by his son Joseph to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, who asked him, how old are you? And Jacob replied, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. And then he added, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And then Jacob, that old man, who was now a refugee from his home country because of a famine, did something really audacious. He put his hand on Pharaoh and blessed him. Who was this Jacob, this old man who boldly blessed, arguably the most powerful man in the world at the time? In just a moment, we're going to see that Jacob was a man upon whom God had set his love before he was even born. And yet Jacob said to Pharaoh, my years have been few and difficult. Jacob did not have an easy life. In fact, in many ways, the chaos of his own life was mostly his fault. And as we've already mentioned this morning, you've noticed that the world is pretty chaotic right now. It's hard not to be constantly thinking about the people of Ukraine, and so they remain in our prayers. But in the midst of national and even international mayhem, it sometimes seems like the enemy has the upper hand. But I assure you this morning that God remains in control, contrary to any appearance. And when Jacob said to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my life, I think he was speaking for a lot of us today. Some of us are in chaos because our marriages are struggling. Some have endured the cruel blows of poor health. Your chaos, in fact, may be joblessness. You've been looking for the right job for a very long time and nothing has panned out for you. Your chaos may be your job that is sucking the very life out of you. And then there are kids who break parents' hearts, loves that are lost, 
We face long, tedious seasons of futility. The sense I get from the people that I talk to is that this is not the way it is supposed to be when God promises to bless your life. And maybe you're here this morning and you're asking, where is God amid all the chaos in the world and in the messiness of our lives? Well, our look at the life of Jacob over these next six weeks, I think, will help answer that question for us. And so with your Bibles open again to Genesis chapter 25, I want to begin reading this morning in verse 19. Let me invite you to stand as we read God's word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus... Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And this is God's most holy and inspired word to us. And all of God's people said, you may be seated. The story of the Bible, the story of the whole book, is how God prepared the way for his son to come into the world. And that story is filled with obstacles and difficulties And many of those obstacles and difficulties belong to what was happening within one particular family, that family that God chose through whom the Messiah would eventually come. Almost every incident in Jacob's life then was related to what was taking place in his own family. And since family is one of God's best gifts, it is inevitably one of the first things that Satan attacks. That's not by accident, because Satan always attacks God's best gifts. 
As you may know, Jacob's grandfather was Abraham and his father was Isaac. And just the mention of those names, Abraham and Isaac, takes us back to the painful circumstances surrounding Isaac's birth. When Abraham was 75 and he and his wife Sarah were still childless, God promised that he and Sarah would become parents. And after 10 more years of waiting, Abraham is now 85. He, he decides to help God out by taking matters into his own hands, by sleeping with Hagar, his wife's servant. And so when Abraham was then 86, Ishmael was born. But Ishmael was not the son of promise. A whole lot of trouble took place in this family because of Abraham's mistake. And finally, though, when Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90, she became pregnant and gave birth to Isaac. And God's plan then continued to be working out though through a very dysfunctional family. When Isaac was 40, he married Rebekah, who was probably around 30 at the time. And the account of their meeting is one of the great romantic stories of the Bible. You can read it later in Genesis chapter 24. And by the way, Isaac was the only patriarch. It's really hard to imagine, but the only patriarch who was actually monogamous in his marriage. But when Rebekah accepted Isaac's proposal of marriage, her own family sang these words over her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. But like Sarah, for Rebekah, after 20 years of marriage, Isaac and Rebekah were still childless. Their opportunity to have a child now seemed to be slipping away. Time was not their ally. Meanwhile, in the verses just preceding what we read a moment ago, we're told about Ishmael and his family. He's, he's having sons all over the place. He's got about 12 sons who form 12 nations of their own. But Isaac, the son of promise, has yet to establish his own line. The stigma of barrenness was difficult for both Isaac and Rebekah, but especially for Rebekah. They must have talked about their heartache for years, but rather than repeat the mistake of his father Abraham and mom Sarah, verse 21 tells us that Isaac prayed for his wife. That's a beautiful picture. And when Isaac was nearly 60 and Rebekah around 50, she then becomes pregnant. And with Abraham and Sarah, then Isaac and Rebekah, we have these two generations of back-to-back God-induced pregnancies. It's almost as if there's a theme here. God makes things difficult. To show that if the messianic line was going to be established, he was going to be the one to do it. The story of two generations of aging, childless couples happened so that the people of Israel could revisit their humble origins and say there is no natural explanation for why we exist. God did something supernatural to bring our people into existence. But Rebecca's pregnancy was anything but easy. To begin with, she was pregnant with twins, but we're told in verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And the sense in the Hebrew here is is something of a violent force. This wasn't just two babies giving mom an occasional kick in the womb. Rebecca's womb was like a boxing match. These, These babies were smashing into one another. 
And essentially she said, if this pregnancy is God's doing, then why is this happening to me? We feel for Rebecca, but there's a powerful lesson here for all of us. We wrongly assume that if something is God's will, then it's going to be easy. That is seldom true. Who told us? Who convinced you? Who led you to believe that if you did what God wants you to do, all things would be smooth and easy? They never are. Who told you that taking that job that God seemed to drop right in your lap was going to be a walk in the park? Who told you that going internationally to serve him was, was going to be pain-free? Who told you that, that living for Jesus before your unbelieving family was going to be deeply appreciated by them? Friends, don't confuse God's will with assuming everything is going to be simple. In Rebecca's case, this wasn't just a difficult pregnancy. Something extraordinary was happening. Her pregnancy foreshadowed the future. She brought her pain to the Lord, and I love that. Isaac prays for her, and then as she's pregnant and she's experiencing this turmoil, then she goes to the Lord herself, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger." I, I remember when Lisa was, was pregnant with Jonathan, someone gave her a book with the title, What to Expect When You're Expecting. God said this to an expecting mother that she never could have expected. You are caught up, God says to Rebecca, in a story, a bigger story, bigger than anything you could ever imagine. Your babies are two nations. Difficult days lie ahead for you. Esau would go on to be the founder of the Edomites. Of course, Israel, Jacob, was the father of the 12 tribes. But in utero and beyond, Rebekah's two sons would not get along with one another. And that's an understatement. They would not only be different, they, they would be sheer rivals. And in a monumental reversal of how things worked, God said that the older son would serve the younger one. That is something unheard of. That's the kind of thing that never happened in the ancient world. It's staggering, really. It's not the main point of the story, but it's an important point to stress all the same. God often works in ways that are contrary to what is normal or what we expect. He loves to turn things upside down, and he isn't bound to our customs and traditions. He doesn't always act the way that we want him to. Have you noticed? He chooses the outcast. He stands with the downtrodden. He sides with the weak. In this case, he chooses the youngest. Why? Because it's his prerogative. He's God. And he does what pleases him. This pleased him. The Apostle Paul comments on this story in Romans 9. And he brings up in Romans 9 a topic that some say should not be mentioned in polite conversation. He, he introduces the topic of election. And in Romans 9, verses 10 and 12, this is the New Testament commentary on Genesis 25. He writes, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, now he quotes Hosea, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Sobering words. This reversal of things is so unusual that God attaches his own name to it and says, in effect, this is my doing. This is my call. This is my work. Massive reversals like this, where things are turned upside down, are proof of God's fingerprints of his active presence in our world. And he does it all the time. How in the world with a, with, can a teenager with nothing but a slingshot and five stones, take down the mightiest man of his generation. How is it that a little baby boy born to an unknown couple in an obscure country and a know-nothing village, how could that baby be the king of the world? God is always turning things upside down. It's It's a massive reversal from the ordinary. Well, the issue here comes down to one overriding truth. God is God, and he does what pleases him. Does that unsettle you? You may not be able to intellectually apprehend all of that, but does that disrupt you? It shouldn't. It doesn't make God capricious or mean or unpredictable. It simply means that God is sovereign. And on days like today, I am grateful that God is sovereign, that he is enthroned in heaven and he rules over all things. And in his sovereignty, he chooses those to whom he will show mercy. These are deep waters. And if you struggle getting that around your head, it's okay. Just let God be God. And let his perfect will be done. Now the fact that God chose Jacob is the defining issue with him and his brother Esau. But as we will soon find out, Jacob was not a good guy. He will turn out to be a liar, a manipulator, a first-rate schemer. And even during birth, he's not likable. In verse 24, we read again that when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, and afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And so they named him Jacob, heel grabber. And Isaac was 60 when Rebekah bore them. Since Isaac was 60 when his sons were born meant that Abraham was still living. So granddad was still around. In fact, he doesn't die until these boys are 15 years of age. Anyway, Rebecca had twins, and they were far from identical. They looked different right away. Esau came out as if he was wearing a sweater. Smooth as a baby's bottom just didn't fit Esau, if you know what I mean. And it wasn't just baby hair that he lost after a few weeks. I mean, that dude stayed hairy his entire life making me extremely jealous. 
But among the twins, Esau was born first. And normally the firstborn had the position of authority and responsibility, especially in a spiritual sense. It was this firstborn then who was the Gary on the messianic line. But Rebecca was told something very different. The personality of her youngest son was on full display when he was emerging through the birth canal, but seen grabbing onto Esau's heel. He's trying to pull his brother back inside so that he can come out first. And, and that becomes a pattern that Jacob lives out for the rest of his life. And the two boys are named for what happened at their birth. Esau means Harry and Jacob means grabber, the one who overreaches. So what are the names of your two sons, Rebecca, Harry and grabber? But both names are prophetic of their future. If you're a parent of more than one child, you've probably noticed that children of the same parents can be wildly different from one another. One may be an introvert while another is an extrovert. One likes to work with his hands while another thinks that manual labor is something other people do. Our son, Jonathan, slept during the day and was awake all night. 32 years later, that hasn't changed much. Children can be exhaustingly different. Esau and Jacob turn out to be as different from one another as night is from day. In verse 27, we skip ahead from their birthday to adulthood, and we are told what kind of men they became. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So Esau was a man of the fields. He was an outdoorsman, and he didn't just sit in a deer den and just fire away when one appeared. Now, he didn't hunt that way. He, he was the kind of man who liked to go out and hunt for days and sit around the campfire at night. By contrast, Jacob was a quiet man. The Hebrew word tam, T-A-M in English, transliterated, means simple or innocent. That's ironic because he was anything but. Jacob was an indoor guy. He thought about things. He read books, maybe. He could be underestimated, and yet this Jacob, as we will come to find out, had ice in his veins. So far, so good, until we come across the saddest words, I think, in all the showcases of misapplied parenting. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Split loves. Divided loves between a mom and a dad. When we became parents for the first time, we were stunned that this little life now deposited into our hands did not come with an owner's manual. Our car had one, but this baby didn't. And I remember thinking, what do we do now? And fortunately, mom carried the brunt of the work at first. And when Janelle was born later, I wondered what in the world was I going to do with a little girl. But one thing I grasped when both of them were then deposited into our lives, immediately I grasped this as though though they were different and, and they became very, very different as they grew up. We loved both of them the same. We treated them differently because they were different but we love them both equitably. But in this family, there was something not only dysfunctional, there was something very sinister. A sinister kind of favoritism floated around the atmosphere of their home. And it wasn't just that Jacob was 
was not into hunting and, and Esau wouldn't make his bed. It was far deeper than that. Sometimes the nature of our dysfunction is so subtle as parents, we're, we're hardly aware of it. That we may convey more than we realize with a smile or with a frown or the rolling of the eyes. But something sour was going on in these parents and their love for their boys was divided. It was difficult for Isaac to connect with Jacob and difficult for Rebekah to connect with Esau. But the boys breathed all of that in. And they learned to adapt. And then they learned how to manipulate their parents for their own ends. You know, one playing one parent off against the other. And, and they knew how to take advantage of this divided affections of mom and dad. If you're a parent of more than one child, it may be normal for you to connect easier with one of your children. But whatever you do, manage those differences well. Unaddressed favoritism cannot be ignored. It can ruin a family. And the solution, again, is not to try and treat each child the same. The The solution is to know the inclination of each of your children and then treat them accordingly, loving them deeply. One day, the tension peaked when Jacob was home cooking and Esau was out hunting. Boy, Jacob could cook, and Esau returned home hungry, and he's not just hungry, he's, he's starving. And there's no reason, I've heard preachers over the years minimize Esau's hunger. There's no reason to minimize it at all. It may not have been an exaggeration for Esau to say that he was about to die. I'm, I'm reading a book right now, Under in Different Stars. It's the story of the Donner Party as they traveled out west and the horrors that took place. But in that book, Sharman Apt Russell is quoted. She wrote a book called Hunger and an Unnatural History, and she says that hunger is perhaps the strongest and most unyielding of human urges. It handily outcompetes all other emotions for our attention. It pesters at first, and, and then it nags, and then it finally screams or yells at us if we are unwilling to satisfy its demands. Well, Esau comes in from the field and he is famished. He is starving. He smells the stew that Jacob has been brewing and he simply grunts out. And really, in the original Hebrew, it comes out like a grunt. Give me some of that red stuff, he said. And Jacob was just too ready. He sees the moment he'd been waiting for. And this wasn't a flashing idea that just came to him at a moment. His whole scheme here was rather Machiavellian. And in five premeditated words, he says to his brother, sell me your birthright now. And Esau's like, what? What good is my birthright if I'm dead? And Jacob says, swear to it. And Esau swears and exchanged his birthright for a bowl of stew. The hunter became the hunted. Esau eats and then he leaves. The story of Jacob's manipulation may make us feel sympathy for Esau, who comes out of this story looking sort of like the underdog until you read the final sentence of verse 
or of chapter 25. A strong condemnation for his flawed value system. Thus, we're told, Esau despised his birthright. He treated it with contempt. He treated it as if it was worse than nothing without any regret at all. This wasn't a birth certificate. This was what made Esau heir to all of the spiritual promises and he treated it with contempt. Esau's choice exposed his soul. He didn't value spiritual things. They meant nothing to him at all. Older theologians commenting upon this passage use an old word then to refer to Esau. They called him profane. He wasn't a man who valued spiritual things. His whole life, his whole bent was fueled by satisfying his cravings and his appetites. Yes, this story is meant to shock us. Because Jacob, in a moment of manipulation, says to his brother, give me everything that is important to you. And Esau gave him everything and lost it all. He, he gave up what mattered most so that his cravings could be satisfied. Esau was a cautionary tale for us. If you live for your appetites, if you live for your lusts, if you live for your cravings, if you just live for what is now, if you live for the temporal, you'll lose everything. But our focus in this series is not on Esau. It's on Jacob. So what about this guy? He's a scoundrel. He's a cruel trickster. He's a sleazy swindler. The resumes of both of these men are soiled. There's Esau with his profane treatment of spiritual things. There's Jacob, though, with his backstabbing, mean-spirited, scheming ways. Jacob is a rotten character. It would take years for God to untangle all the knots in Jacob's life and how he lived. And we're going to see that in this series of the lengths that God goes to to transform this guy from a scoundrel to a saint. What's true about Jacob is true of all of us. We are sinners, one and all. One of the reasons why I love the Old Testament and I love looking at the lives and characters and the biographies of people in the Old Testament is because they are like a mirror and they show us us. They reveal our our flaws, our warts, They show up everything about us. We are stained. We are dodgy. We are irreverent. We can be sleazy. We can be manipulative. We can be Machiavellian like Jacob. We can be twisted. The American novelist Brad Meltzer says people are more twisted than people think. If our lives were a storefront, I think the the sign out front would read, Twisted are us. 
That is who we are. Every one of us, twisted chaos on two legs. But here's the question that hangs over this story. And for most of Jacob's life, did not God know who Jacob was when he chose him? Did not God know what kind of man Jacob would be when God said the older will serve the younger? Of course he did. And that's the whole point of the story. Jacob, like us, was far from righteous. And God knows it. We are so far from God. And God knows that too well. In fact, the very angels in heaven are probably having that conversation right now. As maybe a handful of them walk up to the throne and said, God, you sure you got the right group of people? Look at them. Did you make a mistake? Because their lives don't always live like you want them to. Master, are you sure you've got the right people? Here's the storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible is from beginning to end, no one is righteous. Not even one, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Moses, not David, not Peter, not Paul. But the apostle Paul did say at best, I think, when he said, I thank God that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's my story. And if I may be frank, it's your story too. Jacob is a picture of how we make it so difficult for God to save any of us. And then God in his amazing love and the freedom of his grace and the wonder and outrageousness of his mercy chooses to set his love upon the likes of you and me. It's all of God. It's all of mercy. It's all of grace. The world gets confused about this. They, they somehow think that if you're a Christian, you, you pretend that you're better than everybody else. No, we don't. We say we're scoundrels. We've got nothing. We are sleazeballs. Our sin was great. His mercy was greater. Again, in Romans 9... Paul says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why did God choose to love you? Why did he save you? If you know Christ, if you've called out to him to forgive you of your sins, why you? And it wasn't because you were so lovable. 
It wasn't because we made ourselves so endearing to him. We, like Jacob, were scoundrels. Ultimately, God chose us because he chose to show us mercy, and we've been made righteous because he has clothed us with the righteousness of Christ through faith. We are not, not one of us, righteous in ourselves. Jacob was a scoundrel and the worst of them all. And yet, yet, about a dozen times in the Bible, when God chooses to identify himself from, from the burning bush when he first spoke to Moses, all the way through the ministry of Jesus, you hear this refrain again and again, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Because God chooses to identify by his mercy with the likes of you and me. That's not a testimony to our greatness or to theirs. It's a testimony to the grace of God. We deserve nothing. And he has given us everything by his amazing love. Let's pray. And Father, that just drives us to the place of almost literally wanting to fall on the ground before us and say, we have nothing, we've got nothing, we've shown nothing, we've earned nothing. And the very fact that you would choose to show us mercy and then pour out your lavish grace on us really is the most staggering thing we could ever hear. I suppose we'll never be able to comprehend it all. But the fact that you would give your son for us and show us unconditional, unrelenting grace that forgives all of our sins. What a great God. What a great savior is Jesus Christ. And then to identify yourselves with us, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and I am the God and and we insert our names. Not to pat ourselves on the back, but to celebrate your grace. And Father, that's what we want to do now. We just want to take some moments, unhurried, unrushed, but before your presence, Thank you for your amazing grace. For once we were blind, but now we can see. And with our eyes, we see Jesus. And with our eyes, we see grace. Grace shown to the least of these. And we thank you. So lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.